Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs, and this is episode six. My wife stepped in. She moved the studio around a little bit. She didn't like the angle. If you were watching on YouTube, she felt the uh, the crotch shot was vulgar, so she raised some cameras and got this mic out of my face, uh, which I'm more comfortable with because, you know, it was right up in there. It was rather uncomfortable. Never thought anything of it, so she came in, tweaked some things. I told her I had like a 169 uploads on the Apple thing in my last episode, so I appreciate the, the listens, and now she wants to get involved. Before, I was just playing games. She didn't have anything to say. Now, all of a sudden, I'm an influencer, and she wants to jump in, but whatever. I do like the, the layout a little better. So, I, I want to discuss, I had this awesome conversation with this coach, Cheaty. If you guys are familiar with Altus, you're familiar with Cheaty. He's a track coach. He, um, when I worked at Offensive Line Performance, he did all our combine prep. Just awesome coach. Can He even did one of our seminars, and he spoke about track, but he used the OLP terminology. So he's just super, he's intelligent, he's adaptable to conversations. He, he gives great coaching cues, all kinds of stuff, you know. So I, I have a ton of respect for Chidi. I've learned a ton from him, from everything, from deceleration, acceleration, even he's even giving me arguments like when I'm talking with coaches or teaching coaches, he's giving me a ton of cues from the sprint side that have actually apply and carry over really well to the O line side. One of them is like gaining ground and the false step. You know, he, he's he's broken those things down for me in baseball terms, sprinting terms, and then we traded language on O line terms. Cheaty is awesome. So I speak with him the other day and some coach, I wish I knew. It was a strength coach. came up on my feed. He posted one. I don't. I think it was high school. So he posted a video of one of his high school athletes running a forty, and he ran a four five two, which was impressive. And he was Caucasian, which we don't see that kind of speed that often. You know, they had, ah, just don't see it that often. Four five two. I don't know the position, but he ran like a duck, feet way turned out, and. The coach made the point, like, technique, you know, it matters, but sometimes you just got to run fast. And I didn't even read the comments because I was like, I think people are going to question this, the feet turned out, the positioning, the technique that the guy's using. But I'm like, it's hard to challenge that when he's running a 4-5-2 as a white high school athlete. It's impressive. Don't cancel me. I'm sure there's some fast white guys out there. I know France had a guy break the 10 seconds in the 100 meter which you wouldn't expect out of France. But uh, anyways, so I hit up Cheaty because I'm not a track expert. So I want to go speak to a track expert about this and see what he says. My opinion, I'm kind of on that um, after, you know, speaking with Ross Cooper and, and Blazer and, you know, that Bruce Lee thing, athletes find a way to organize type idea. I'm like, ah, you don't change it. It's tempting when you see an athlete running like a duck, you know, we all know those archetypes of what movement's supposed to look like, what a sprint's supposed to look like. Again, not a sprint expert. and uh, But we know what it's supposed to look like. We've all heard the toes straight arguments and things like that. But I'm like, man, 4-5-2. It's hard to argue with that. So, Cheaty breaks it down. Hey, there could be a lot causing that. Injuries, joint structures. Uh, he said one of the things he wouldn't do at the end of the day was really focus on changing his uh, feet, but he also said he doesn't know the athlete. And I was like, well, that's a good point. I'll get to that point in a minute. And I said, 
have you ever seen any world-class sprinters like organized in such like an exasperated manner with their toes out like a duck and he sent me one from the olympics i think he was a silver medalist ran a nine eight hundred meter obviously wasn't a caucasian but he did run like a duck and it worked for him that's how he organized so Chidi was talking to me about like he's had athletes that they didn't have the right shoulder angle when they ran they tried to address these things and it actually made the athlete worse and this goes back to the thing of self-organizing and we try to overcoach things and we could take away what makes an athlete unique. So you got to be careful about that. I'll give you an example with me personally. So I had, we, see, we call it the knee flare, the knee whip. When I was at center, you a lot of times see, um, especially when centers go left and they're trying to get deeper, their knee flares out. So my right knee would flare out when I went left. It didn't happen when I went right. It didn't happen when I was setting a shade to the left. It didn't happen when I was setting a two-eye to the left. It was when I was really trying to get space. Maybe it was an even front, two, three techs. Maybe it was an even front with a two-eye to my right and a three to my left where I'm kind of setting for both, right? Because when you're a center, you're not just setting for one guy. You're setting for both. You're setting for the TT. You're setting to be able to help everybody. And uh, when I went left and had to get deep, you know, or, or two backers that could possibly uh they're standing in a gaps double a mug that could possibly cross dog or pick me when i went left my knee whipped really far my right knee and we know like okay this doesn't look right it doesn't fit that archetype of good movement and i you know i had i don't think many coaches said anything to me about it i don't i can't i'm trying to think not not in the nfl they never said anything because it was so common but um, and then, and in some centers, I remember like Lyle's inline when no matter which way he went, his knees whipped out. And uh, one of my like trainers was always trying to be like, "Hey, we messed with it. We raised my butt, uh, engaged my adductors, and all kinds of stuff." With, and I would work on it. I would come into the facility. No, no joke. I would come into the facility uh, in Chicago, even like at five a.m. And then guys would start kind of rolling in at six. From like five to six, I'd be working, trying to get rid of this knee whip. And uh, then I'd, like sometimes on air, I'd finally get it right. And I remember in the off season, going into my second year at Chicago, we finally figured it out. Finally figured out how to get rid of it. And it was so much work and organizing to get rid of this knee whip. Like I had to, it was like, I don't know, how, I don't want to get sciencey, but like I had to push my left pelvis up, push push my left shoulder up. I had to engage my right lat on my snapping hand. I had to do all this weird stuff. I even had to stagger slightly as a right guard to not knee whip going left as a center, basically. So, like, instead of a traditional parallel center stance, I was, like, slightly in a right guard stance to just get rid of the knee whip going left. I remember one of my mentor, one of my favorite closest friends ever that I played with, Roberto Garza, he was like, that's just the way you do it. And he, he, he kept it so simple. He was like, just the way you do it, who cares? But I, I, no, I know what it looks like. It's not supposed to happen. He didn't have a knee whip. He also squatted 1,000 pounds, and uh, he was different. But when it was all said and done, I finally figured a way to go left without knee whipping. And when I broke down thousands of reps, because, you know, like in this picture of Bruce Lee, I was under that idea of 1,000 reps, you know, the 1,000 or 10,000 kicks, I would just rep it, rep it, rep it. And when I'd film it, kind of what I found out, like, 
through OTAs my second year there, okay, I had no knee whip. I wasn't as effective. I didn't play as well going left. And I'm like, maybe it's different players, whatever. When I broke it down in that offseason after OTA, so the, so basically the spring ball, then we have a break, six-week break before camp. When I really filmed it on my phone, which I feel like we should always be uh, filming our drills as athletes because we have it's just accessible. We could see our movement and uh, look at perception versus reality and things like that. When I really filmed it, I didn't move faster. It was actually moving slower, taking away that knee whip. And when I get to my spot, I was just a little stiffer. I was less fluid, not like water, right? So I said, bump that. Bring the knee whip back. And I stopped, I stopped caring about it. So very few people would say anything about it. But I knew that me focusing on the knee whip was taken away from something in my game. Anecdotally, right? So kind of just piggybacking. That's my experience with uh, trying to you know, adapt to an archetype of, archetype of movement. It screwed me. And I remember in uh, when I went to Arizona, or no, Chicago my last year, because I went back to Chicago after being on a couple different teams over three years, uh, I never even thought about any of the organizing, any of, like, the tension, any, uh, um, any, like, the rigidity that I had, like, learned over the years. I was just like, I'm just going to go out there and play. I was a camp body, and I was like, I'm going to play my best ball. And I did. That was my best preseason of my life when I kind of just threw out everything and just went and had fun and played. I remember I wasn't pulling anything and pulling my shoulder blades back or squeezing my adductors. I was like, I just go, get in a fight, get to my spot, get in a fight. That's how I looked at it. And uh, when I watched that film, my knee whip was even worse in uh, that year than any of my other years. Worse my knee whip ever been. When I went left, though, if I was catching a TE, there was a lot of pancakes. And I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying that I was so concerned about matching an archetype that it was taking some taking from something away on the back end. And I think that's what Cheedy was really saying. And that's my experience with it as well, with the knee whip. So I'm always, like, cautious now about um, taking away from old linemen with their, I don't know, uh, just their weird habits that they kind of self-organize to play the game at a high level. So that's why with sprinting, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, so I reach out to an expert, you know what I mean? And uh, I got a little confirmation bias there from old Cheaty. You should check him out. That guy, that guy's the man. He's on my Instagram. I follow him and on my um, Twitter. Just an awesome freaking coach. And, uh, you know, like, he'd, he'd even alluded to, like, Coaches were calling out athletes he was working with because some of the athletes didn't match that archetype. And like I said, he had like a shoulder that was, uh, wasn't the right angle when the athlete was sprinting. When they tried to address it, it actually made the athlete worse, so they just let it be and went back to the old way. Kind of like I say, slay that dragon. They want to slay the dragon. And he had like coaches call him out. And when he was like, look, you don't know this athlete's history. You don't know anything going on. And, um, I think that's a great freaking point. You how how do you know? How do you know like we tried to work on this and it made the athlete worse? You don't know. So just because you have like an idea archetype of what something's supposed to look like, like with this kid, he ran a four five two. That's blazing in my world. In my world, I ran a five three. Uh, maybe I should have ran uh, duck footed. I don't know. But 
if you don't know the athlete's history, you don't know the coach, and you don't know the relationship, you don't know what they've tried to uh, tinker with and tried to improve upon, then, I mean, maybe the better way is ask a question. Hey, have you ever thought about this athlete's shoulder? Instead of saying things like, oh, this athlete would, uh, if you got their shoulder right, they're going to be faster. Or if you turn this kid's feet in, he's running a 4-3. You don't know the history. It kind of makes me think of everything going on in the Olympics with um, uh, Simone Biles. Like, okay, to me, she was a beast, uh, goat of gymnastics, and I don't know anything that was going on with her right now. I don't really know the story. I didn't get into it. I've kind of failed to follow the Olympics as of recent. Got finals this week. I'm just squeezing this in right now to keep my stay consistent with my weekly uh, podcast. But I don't know any of the history. So for me to be like, oh, she she's some failure or whatever. Look, I take mental health serious. I'll hear the other argument too, though, that um, – she lacked mental resistance. I don't know what the hell she was going through. I'm not her coach. I'm not her teammates. So I don't know. Like, for me, it'd be a question that we're, we're going to learn down the road. If we want to know the truth, like, reserve your opinion. If you're going to bash the kid, just reserve your opinion for when she puts out her autobiography, right? We'll have a little more truth because we don't know. Like Chidi said, like, you don't know what, what it, the coach was working with. You don't know what she was going through. All we know is she won a lot of gold medals prior to this. She set new high standards, and she was uh, judged based on the standards that she created because she was so good. Uh, would we all like to see her compete? Yes. I take mental health seriously. Um, I do get that. I think there's a stigma that goes both ways now with mental health. Where you, So it used to be uh, football was a culture where we didn't think about it. We didn't know what the hell mental health was. Anxiety to me. I didn't know what anxiety was, so I was in my mid-20s. I just thought it was the butterflies. You hit somebody, and the butterflies go away, and that was that. And then we got taught, oh, it was anxiety. So then when we felt anything, we started freaking out. And I'm like, dude, it's nothing different than you felt two years ago. It's nothing different than you felt in high school. If that's the case, like, it's kind of, you know, like I say, it's your dragon, right? It's showing you where you want to go, but it can prevent you where you're trying to go also. So there's that happy medium where, there's an evolutionary advantage to having a little anxiety, right? It's when it becomes chronic. So I think we're dealing with two stigmas in mental health right now where it's still not okay to talk about with some groups, and I think it's overemphasized with others. At the end of the day, I know nothing about her, just like I don't know anything about that athlete running with his toes out. I will wait to read her um, uh, her autobiography because I will buy it because she was a beast, and I want to know she was a beast, why she was a beast. I also want to know why... Um, what crack for her? Because maybe it'll be able to help athletes down the line. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to be uh, great. You know what I mean? And it, it comes with some responsibilities, and sometimes they get heavy with you. I I feel the same way about um, uh, social justice stance. Like it's hard to be an athlete and have a social justice stance. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. Like look at the, right here. Those watching on YouTube, that's Muhammad Ali. That's my hero, and it was my grandpa who taught me about him who was a colonel in the army for 30 years probably would have voted for trump i don't know but he, he voted republican most of the time don't cancel him but that was one of his heroes my grandpa went to vietnam three times yeah he muhammad ali was one of his heroes so i'm not saying i have a problem with social justice uh i think it's a tough load to carry sometimes i believe that you know when we talk about like power and greatness when you 
I think greatness or power mimics greatness, right? Sometimes we want to give power away to, to the great people. Like, why wouldn't you, right? So with athletes, we'll have a platform and you have a, a conviction and things you believe in and you want to address those things. I'm all for it. I respect it. Even if it's something I don't agree with, and I won't give my stance on like uh, Colin Kaepernick, but I respect that you you uh, you uh, you're, you have enough conviction to do what he did, right? Regardless of what I agree with, so I always respect that. But I think that it—I I mean, I believe in athletes I've dealt with, and I've got best friends that have taken these that it weighs on them, right? But when you are when your greatness, and there's a difference between just being having a platform because you play um, in the Olympics or you play on a professional sports team and being great. There's levels, right? To me, Muhammad Ali was the greatest. He is the GOAT, right? That is, at any sport, to me, he's the GOAT. I don't care about the record. I don't care about his, his losses. One thing he lost, he always came back and got him back. He lost his belt four times, whatever. To me, he was the GOAT. But he... He was greatness, and people were willing to give him power. And you got to think of the timing with, when these things happen, where it doesn't weigh you down as much as an athlete. And I'm not saying this is what happened to Simone. I'm just rambling like I do. Um, but if you think about it, like when he fought Sonny Liston, he didn't change his name until he won that title, right? And not saying he was scared or anything. I don't have anything bad to say about the man. But he won that title, and that, that was, you know, it's not like it is today. The heavyweight title, you know, post Tyson era, I mean that was that was the greatest title in the world. He had the power now. He was the GOAT. He was twenty one years old or twenty two years old when he won the title. And then he changed his name, defends his title, and then he spoke out against Vietnam. And and that's how I learned about Muhammad Ali. Uh I'll get into that. But then he spoke out against Vietnam. So but people gave him power because he was great, because he was greatness. And then, you know, he fought his battles that he was believed in as a man, man with conviction, uh, speaking out against the Vietnam. He didn't run either. I don't care. You call him a draft dodger. That's BS. He's not a draft dodger. He was a conscientious objector. Part of the reason that makes him the GOAT. But um, like kind of why I get on Muhammad Ali. So after 9-11, my grandpa, the colonel, we went to breakfast, and Muhammad Ali was on the news. I think we were at Denny's. We're sitting at the, like, the bar. And Muhammad Ali was in the, at the news, and a guy with a um, – he had a veteran hat on too um, – said some things in disapproval of people trying to listen to Muhammad Ali. The reason they had Muhammad Ali up there is because he was – he's Muslim. When he was alive, he was a Muslim. And he was saying, this is not representative of the Muslim religion, uh, the terrorists that attacked us on 9-11. And he spoke out, and he called him a draft dodger. My grandpa went over and said, I disagree. And – Shocker, they spoke it out, and my grandpa said he was a conscientious objector. My grandpa was like, hey, I went to Vietnam three times, I retired a colonel, I believed in that war, and I was a man of conviction just as Ali was, and he gave up the title because of what he believed in. He didn't want to see black men get or black boys get enslaved in Vietnam for a country that didn't represent him fairly. And my grandpa said all that, and I'm saying this as my grandpa being, you know, a patriot. American, he lived in an all-Mexican neighborhood. He had the biggest uh, American flag on his uh, mailbox. Stuck out huge American flag, American flag magnets everywhere. Uh, but Muhammad Ali happened to be one of his heroes. 
and shocker, two guys disagreeing. They were able to talk it out. So when we left that place, when we left breakfast, my grandpa took me to the bookstore, and I bought that very copy right there of The Greatest, and uh, When Pride Still Mattered by Vince Lombardi. Those were like the first kind of books I read cover to cover. That Those two books and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding. I'm a meathead, uh, so don't be surprised. So those were the three books. I, prior to that, I just read a few chapters of Goosebumps books for book reports, and uh, I would never finish them, and I would say, instead of telling the ending in my book report, I'd be like, you'll have to see. The truth is, I didn't read them. I'm sorry, Mrs. Burkhart. Didn't finish those books. But I did finish The Greatest. I did finish Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, and I did finish the biography uh, biography on uh, Vince Lombardi. So, I don't know how I got down that rabbit hole. I apologize for rambling. But, oh, I was saying, because I feel like athletes, I think it's hard being an athlete. I think it's hard to carry all these things. Um, such as uh, social justice stuff before you before you really reach greatness. You know what I mean? I think it, it weighs on you. Af- athletics is hard. It's getting harder. You get you get uh, dragged on social media. You get dragged by uh, tons of experts. If you play football, you got PFF grading you. Are, are they legit? It's a legit business. I don't know if they're legit at what they do. Uh, I don't pay. I try not to pay attention to them, but. No, so I just think overall, it's just tough being an athlete. So I don't, I don't have nothing bad to say about Simone. I look forward to learning about all this in the future. Like, cause like Chidi said, I don't, I'm not her coach, I'm not her circle, I'm not her teammates, and I just wish her well. We we got to witness an amazing athlete and what seems like an amazing person for years. So I don't really have an opinion on it. I get the mental resilient argument. I get the mental health thing. I think both things are important, and. uh I can believe in both having mental resilience and focusing on mental health. And I can believe in both at the same time while not having an opinion on Simone because I just don't know. I think Chidi also helped me come to that conclusion right now when he, when he was talking to me about the sprinters. Uh, and that's where I stand on that current event. And now you know about one of my heroes. So I wanted to talk about... Uh, the first time I was on Twitter, I had a, a an account for the brand I work for. I didn't necessarily uh, get to, I didn't, what the words that were being typed weren't necessarily me, right? Like I, I was, rep, I had to represent a brand a certain way, but I would see this pattern of just coaches bashing kids, right? And it, to me, it was freaking bizarre. And uh, I got back on Twitter, I think earlier this year with a, just to represent my mf and self account and i see that same pattern and there's things that there's uh catalysts that have brought us to more bashing the nil that's interesting i mean i've seen a a coach bashing kids that says he knows how to develop a brand that was a volunteer coach but he had twenty five thousand followers and he was telling athletes you shouldn't bother making a brand when you're not the starter i'm like you're not the head coach of clemson you are you're a volunteer coach and you're bashing kids because they don't know how to develop a brand. Like, what what paradox are we living in right now? You're not the dude either. So why are you hating on athletes for shooting their shot? So, I mean, these, these are the things that come up. You see things like they posted that LSU O-line full of just five monsters. And you still think you can play D1? And I'm like, look at those monsters. That's not the norm. And not every one of them is an NFL player. Let's just call it what it is. 
You know what I mean? There's probably some D1 guys at uh, smaller schools that are maybe more skilled than him. We don't know. And then you see now you see the training camp schedule. You still think you want to be a college football player? It's a full-time job. Relax, man. It just the, the, uh, the, the schedule for a college football player for training camp, yeah, it's a lot. It just after a few days, you're just going through the motions. You're good to go. You, everyone adapts. And guess what? The players are tired. The coaches are tired. The wives are tired. The girlfriends are tired. It lasts a month, and then you're then you're rolling. Like it's not that freaking hard. Like it's hard, but most are willing to do that, right? Uh, and then I see things just, uh, just the the norm. Hey, uh, why you're not a D one athlete? You don't have straight A's. You don't have all these all these. You know. If you're building the perfect person that happens to play football, could be true, but we know they're not true. So I, it just, I just saw it really heavy this week. I think the NIL, NIL was the catalyst, plus I think all the states are playing football again, so maybe everyone's flocking and they're trying to get their ridiculous tweets out about how soft kids are or whatever, about how um, uh, these guys don't, they don't know what it takes, whatever. And uh, it just got me thinking about my whole, my whole process and pr- progression through high school. I, I just don't, I can't wrap my head around bashing kids, when uh, instead of helping, right? So when I was in high school, I was terrible. I was a terrible football player. I started playing at seven. I played O line, and that mean, and when I was seven in Pop Warner, there was weight classes. So meaning. Uh, you could only be so big to play. So everyone was relatively the same size. If you wound up on the O-line, it's because you were not a good athlete. And that's the truth. So I wound up on the O-line. Played that my whole year, whole career. Got to high school. There's no weight classes now. So now I'm trying to play O-line versus uh, big guys, bigger guys. And uh, I never got in a game. I didn't get in one high school game uh, my freshman year. Uh, sophomore year. I let a bunch of people talk me out of the line. There's no way you can play O line. So sophomore year, I moved to outside backer because that was about the size I was. I was about like one, uh, one fifty my sophomore year. So on JV, didn't play one down. I got a couple snaps on kickoff that entire year. Junior year, uh, I stayed with the linebacker. Right, so that's where things got interesting to me. And I just want to tell a story about a coach. And, and coaches that really helped me uh, overcome this. So I'm lucky I didn't have this social media stuff where coaches are bashing players' dreams and stuff. It's okay to be realistic, right? But don't bash dreams. There's always outliers, right? And everyone technically would be an outlier. So my junior or going into my junior year, I uh, I really valued hard work. So one thing I was lucky is that. My family, I had a psycho grandpa, not the colonel, my other grandpa, that he would call me the C-word, C-U-N, got it, C-word, if I didn't wake up with him at 5.30 or 5 a.m. to go to the gym, Ironworks gym, and he had this obnoxious uh, BW rabbit, and it was a diesel, and it shook like hell, and it was super loud, and we had these single-pane windows, and you could hear it, and then on top of it, it had an obnoxious horn, and he would come to my house, and if I wasn't outside already, he would honk. And it wasn't like the whole neighborhood couldn't hear him already with that diesel. So he would come every day. And then if I didn't wasn't if, if I wasn't waiting for him on the street, 
my mom was mad because she had to hear the honk, and then he was mad because I was the C word. But for whatever reason, it worked for me. I really valued the weight room. I valued hard work, and I valued you know the ability to grow. I had heroes like Muhammad Ali. I had heroes like uh, Vince Lombardi and Arnold Schwarzenegger, where they just kind of had these awesome stories about how they came up. They just outworked everyone. That's all I knew was truth. I didn't have all these just haters uh, that are influencers with 25,000 followers just bashing me. So I'm lucky, right? I don't know how to handle that noise. So I always valued hard work, and we had a coach, Coach Jason Harris. He was the running back at UW. I think his senior year was like 97 or 99, 99 maybe. And uh, he was our track coach also, and he was a JV coach and a running back on coach on varsity. And I was always trying to work hard. So he took me under his wing for no reason, zero reason. If you met me, there was no way you were thinking, hey, I'm going to get something back out of this. It's not why he did it because I hadn't played it down on my freshman year. I hadn't played it down on my sophomore year. So going to my junior year, he comes to our school, and I see him doing track at track practice. I said, hey. I'm very slow as an outside backer. Can I come to the track practices? So he would let me do the track practices with them. I would do everything they did at track, just way slower and way more Caucasian. And he was awesome. You know, on the weekends, we used to go to Manhattan Beach. They had this giant sand dune. And we would run this thing. I would puke. Uh, I would always come in last, but I would always come. I was super consistent. I would always go to the football workout. I would, after football workout, I would go to the track, do the track workout. If it was something like if they were doing events, he would give me a side workout. I remember I was doing plyometrics on the bleachers. He just had an interest in me because I had an interest in hard work, not because I was going to be a starter. I, 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 don't, I just know he was a solid guy, like, hey, man, you could do anything. He just had that vibe. Like He would always be like, hey, the best linebacker at uh, UW, he had a size 17 shoe because I had big feet. I was like 5'4", wearing a 15. And uh, he, like, he, he, had, he had a size 17 shoe. He ran a 4'8", 40. He was the best backer because he just learned the game. So he was always giving me advice, and he was always giving me hope. Imagine that. He played D1 football, and he was just giving me hope. He knew I had no business playing D1 football. It just was, hey. He would help me reach success. I'm talking success from the definition of like Tom Wooden, right? Reaching the peak of my ability. That would be success. It didn't have to be me going to the Pac-10. It was Pac-10 back then. And uh, he, so he, um, that year, let's see, how did this chain of events go? So we go to camp. I absolutely suck. Playing linebacker. I'm barely getting any reps, right? I'm not getting scout reps. I was still a white jersey. So the way our team worked is you got your green jersey when you got on varsity. White jerseys were JV and freshmen. So I was, as a junior, still on JV. And uh, he was still super supportive of me. He'd always come over, hey, how's your reps going? How's it going? How you feel? Da, da, da. Again, he just took me under his wing. I went to the beach. I don't know how many times with him. I did, I don't know how many track workouts with him. And I'm not even getting reps on scout team. And he's still like, hey, man, how's it going, man? Because he at least appreciated that I valued the process, right? Maybe that's why. I could ask him about it one day. And um, so he comes over to me, and he goes, hey, Taylor. And he didn't know I used to play O-line. 
Zeke, when he, he wasn't there my freshman year. He goes, Taylor, I need you to come with me real quick. And he goes, he goes, I want you to go into the scout team O-line. Somebody just got hurt. I'll never forget this play. He goes, shows me a card, and I know the plays. The plays were the same as when I was in Pop Warner, the names, the same as when I was in high school, because a lot of those Pop Warner coaches were assistants at the high school. He goes, hey, you're going to pull around here, and you're going to hit this backer. It was a 57 toss. I go into left guard. I pull around, and I hit this guy so hard, his helmet flew off. And that's not even true. I hit him. I made the block. And then next play, he comes up. He goes, hey, you're going to down block. It was a 37 counter. He goes, you're just going to block this shade. Just pin him. And I had a really good block. So, and if we look at how I got there, I had developed tons of problem-solving abilities playing O-line for, at that point, a decade. And thanks to him, I had gotten stronger, I had gotten bigger, and I got faster, right? So somehow, he gave me some traits that carried over to O-line play. And he goes, that's beautiful. And I just did those two plays, right? Camp ends, we call it, I don't know what we called it back then. I think we called it Hell Week, even though it was a month of hell. It doesn't make sense. And um, he's coaching JV. He's, he's the, he was the OC on JV, and he goes, hey, Taylor. So I'm junior on JV. Our head coach on the varsity team had a rule. He didn't want juniors on JV hogging up all the reps because that would take away from development of the sophomores that he would hopefully have on varsity next year. So you don't care about a guy like me, right? If you're looking at the grand scheme of things, if you're playing JV as a junior, um, the next year you're going to be a special teams player your senior year. So he goes, the first two games go by, I'm just playing linebacker. And I'm rotating with some guys. I would say at that point, I was better than a few of these sophomores, right? But if you're talking potential, they had way more potential at the linebacker position than me. I was just a year, year older. I was a little bigger, a little faster maybe. Ah, not faster. Not many people are faster than. And uh, after the second game, he comes over. He goes, hey, we want to put you on O-line. I go, really? And he still didn't know I played it, right? So maybe that takes away from the, the surprise. But I hadn't played it in two years. And technically, if you look at it, it was really three years because I didn't play one down in a game my freshman year. And uh, he goes, we're going to rotate you. So you're going to play a full game. You'll play half a game on defense and half a game on offense. I said, awesome. So I did that for like the next five weeks. So for about seven weeks, I was on JV as a junior. And we... Our team just fell apart. It was supposed to be our best team ever. We started the season out 3-0, three and three, three and oh, and then we lost to Palmdale at Palmdale, and then we lost the uh, next two games after that. So going into, like, week seven, we're 3-3, three and three, uh, the senior class full of all this talent and just no resilience just buckled. The coaching staff, they were done. Everyone was getting punished. Like, we were, like we were getting so many miles in a week because bear crawls from missed tackles up downs like they were just killing us they didn't they didn't have an answer for how bad we got over the course of three weeks and man it was just uncomfortable to be around i did not experience that i know what i saw everyone else acting like debbie downer sad broken i did not experience that because during this time coach harris and i will introduce two other coaches coach uh Coach Nixon, he played for the Chicago Bears in 1961 and 62, lineman, and Coach Nate McHenry. 
Coach Harris, after telling them to put me on the O-line, those two coaches took me on their wing. They coached uh, varsity team also. Nixon was the D-line coach. Coach Harris was the uh, JV coach on uh, the O-line, and he was a varsity assistant O and D-line coach. So they took me on their wing. And between the three of these guys, they just built me up. They were just like, hey, they were teaching me more and more. They were so impressed. They were just giving me a bunch of love. My team, varsity and JV, was defeated. They were broken. I wasn't going through that. I was just going through. For the first time in several years, uh, I had potential. My hard work was paying off, right? I had a future. And at that time, a future was maybe I'm going to start on varsity next year. Maybe I'll get a green jersey. So we go into week seven, and Coach Harris comes over to me. He goes, hey, I talked to Nixon. I talked to McHenry. You're going to go uh, practice with the uh, varsity O-line today. So the way our practice was is that when you were a JV, you were just scout team for the varsity. So we didn't really even get to practice plays. We'd walk through the plays before practice, and then we'd just be scout dummies. So I only went with linebackers. And uh, so I, for this, my first time ever, he was like, screw that. You're not going to play linebacker, right? I go with the O-line. We go in the shoots. I hate the shoots. Stupid. But um, I won't say that. I just hate the shoots. I'm not going to make anyone feel bad. I hate them, okay? Not because they're hard. I just hate them because I don't think they're useful. Anyways, I go into the shoots, and I know I joked about knocking a guy's helmet off, but I really went into there, and I worked a bunch of guys. And I was smaller than everybody, and they were all down. They were all broken and defeated, and I was built up by these three fucking saviors in my life, right? Not in this negative shit on the Twitter, just trying to break people down because they're haters. I had three guys building me up, and the one started with, there was no reason to take interest in me if you were trying to further your career. There was zero reason. He just did it for the game. He paid it forward, right? The guy played D1 football, he just paid it forward. I, I valued hard work. He appreciated that, right? So we go under these shoots. I get a green jersey the next week. I'm wearing number 55, right? And uh, I think I started the next, no, I, I, I remember like yesterday. We go play Los Osos. They were new to our league. The starting left guard gets a concussion. I get to go in the second half. And I had two plays. It was a 22 trap. Kicked the three tech out. We scored. And then the other play was a 28F. And basically, the play side guard and the backside guard pulled. I was pulling for force. I was the backside guard. And I get out there. And I never said I was a good athlete. But I was short and I had really big feet. And I slipped. But I bear crawled my way and didn't give up. And I blocked the strong safety on a bear crawl. Looked terrible. But I got the block done. And because of that, the next week, which it was a weird week because we had wildfires, we played two games in three days. So the next week, game eight was three days later, I started. So I went from never playing a down in football in high school, a meaningful down, none my freshman year, only played special teams my sophomore year, to rotating with uh, sophomores as a junior on JV, starting a varsity game so for me it's hard for me to imp empathize and this is in socal i know we're full of slap dicks and we got all kinds of stuff to do we got good football though 
you got to give us that. It's, we don't take it as serious as Texas and Florida because I don't know why. But we have good football at the end of the day. And uh, this is why it's hard for me to empathize with coaches bashing kids because I've seen what, it, I've seen what, a, uh, what building a player up can do. And, and they didn't give me passes. Like, they were hard on me. If I, was, I wasn't a perfect kid, I got in trouble in school and stuff, uh, getting in fights or whatever, they would get on me, right? They held me accountable. Even, even within the context of the game, they held me accountable. But they were building me up. I, it was almost like I was separate from the rest of the team. I was getting built up while everyone was getting beat down because of those three losses, right? And I, we had so much hopes going into that season that I just kind of got to skate past the noise. And then I became, I got, I lettered, right? I lettered and uh, um, I think I started two games that year. I started week uh, eight and week nine. And week 10, I rotated when the guy came back from a concussion. And we got blown out by Hart in the playoffs. And I didn't play it down in there. He said, hey, after it was 21 to nothing in the first quarter, I figured I'd let the senior play his last game. That's what Coach McCauley, my varsity O-line coach, said. But, I mean, for me, I don't know how to, how I, I don't know if I would have joined the crowd of bashing players had I not had my experience, right? So maybe I'm just lucky. And a lot of this, a lot of this shit is luck, right? <laughs> no matter, like, me getting, uh, that guy got a concussion and I got to start. That was luck, right? So next year I come in with a solidified starting job for the first time since Pop Warner, right? So there was some luck involved. So had my not came across these coaches, Coach Harris, and then eventually McHenry, Nate McHenry and Coach Nixon, maybe I would join the crowd too. Maybe I'd be bashing kids too, calling them soft, right? Or uh, bashing them not uh, being delusional for trying to capitalize on this NIL thing, right? But because of my route, I don't have any empathy for uh, just just bashing kids. And it's just a weird temperature on social media. Like, certain influencers, and it comes up, I don't follow them, and I don't mute anyone, and I don't block anyone. Put me in the trenches, whatever. We have a disagreement. Life goes on. Just like my grandpa and that guy about Muhammad Ali. I'm not blocking a soul. I'm not muting anybody. If I got a problem, if we got something, we could talk it out like adults, right? But... It comes up on my feed, you know what I mean? I, I, and a lot of the coaches I happen to follow are, you know, giving their juxtaposed position, which probably gets them blocked. But it's just like these coaches feed off of, and I won't say just coaches, former players, coaches, everybody. They just feed off of bashing people, and they put up a catchy phrase and a hashtag and some, like, sly mark with no nuance, no context, bashing kids. I can't get behind it because – I had guys standing behind me when I was nothing, and you would have never thought there was no coach my, after my first three or two and a half years saying I'm going to be a letter in varsity, let alone going to play college football. I didn't play at a great college. I hate it, in fact. It was a D2. I got in the Hall of Fame, and they kissed my ass until they bring football back also, but then I got to the NFL. There was no coaches that would have believed that. But the point is, is that my reality was different because it wasn't, it wasn't bogged down by haters on social media, right? And I'm not saying you don't hold people accountable. 
there's a there's a fine line between being too empathetic and not holding people accountable like holding kids accountable so they can grow like that's important but just being a freaking hater it's ridiculous like my life was a rocky movie that's how i that's all i knew and i have to give coach jason harris so much credit for that because he helped me just believe that reality it didn't matter hey my opponent's bigger right my first opponent opponent was getting a varsity green jersey that was that was my uh uh let's just say that was my clubber lang right getting that getting on varsity that guy was an animal but it didn't matter i just had to work harder right maybe i just go train in a place where uh it's a little rougher right i didn't go to the hood i went to manhattan beach but that you know it wasn't a rough neighborhood but that was a rough hill but if i worked hard anything was possible what's wrong with a kid thinking that what i mean at the very at the very least it's going to carry over into everything i do like if i at least i've developed the trait of being a hard worker no one's ever said uh hard work is bad right you can move up it, it creates opportunities it creates good relationships so like i said you know not saying just be over empathetic with kids you can hold them accountable don't be haters on social media don't just ruin dreams like literally i everything to me was oh i saw rocky do it and i could do that i could uh, conquer everything through hard work so when i met doubters along the way or people questioning along the way i didn't believe that was true because coach harris came into my life and showed me just freaking work hard or work harder or keep trying you know what i mean Uh, even even when i finished my senior year I got second team all baseline league. I think I was probably the fourth best O-lineman on my team. If I win order, it was our center. Right tackle, left tackle was a draw. And then me and then the right guard were like kind of at the bottom. But I, I came from nothing. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep going up. I remember going to talk to my head coach about I need a recruiting film. And he goes, for what? And I go, to go to college. And, I mean, I'm six. Well, I was probably six foot even. Now I'm six five. Awesome gross for post college, um, but I was six foot, two hundred five pounds. I knew I was gonna go play college football because I was just gonna keep working hard. I noticed that all my team after they finished playing their senior season, I don't see anyone in the weight room right now. Thank God. Well, I'm here, and I was trying to get filmed, and my head coach said, "All the college is senior film. It's not gonna do anything," and I was like. Tim, what are you talking about? This is the first time I called a coach outside of their name. I didn't call him coach. I called Tim. What are you talking about? I just keep getting better. I'm just going to keep working. And he goes, what? Or I, when he said that basically all the colleges have seen their film and no one said anything about you because they, they were looking at our quarterback and our, um, our wide receiver. And I said, uh, and he goes, they're, they're going to go wherever they want. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not our quarterback, but I said, I I was like, I don't think our receiver works hard enough. And uh, he laughed. And he was like, sometimes it's talent, which I do know to be true, right? You got to have some talent, right? But it doesn't mean you don't work on your talent. Anyways, uh, I called, I was like, Tim, I was like, you're out of mind. I'm going to go play college football. I don't care what you say. And then like three, so he didn't let me make any tapes. Three days later, he's talking to me and he goes, hey, um, I was like, or coach, I, st- I got to make these tapes. I want to send them out to the colleges. I know, I hear what you said. And he goes, why don't you go to JUCO? 
you probably won't play because you know we had a competitive JUCOs in Southern California. He's like, you probably won't play, but then you could walk onto a D three school. Maybe you get in your senior year. He said it just like this, and he goes, you'll save your parents a lot of money because D threes back then in our area were thirty grand a year. And I go, I was like, that's something to consider. I said, I don't know if that's the route I go. I was like, but regardless, what I do know is I'm going to go to the NFL. And he said, uh, I hope you do. He was like, but he was like, I just got to prepare you for the future. Uh, I don't think you're a college football player. And he goes, you, and then he did say, he's like, you should be proud of what you did here, but I don't think you're going anywhere up from here. Okay. So that was like my first, uh, my first hater. And, and my center was there for this. Ryan Henry, he went on to play. He got told the same thing. He went on to play D1 also. He went to uh, Riverside Community College back before these buster-ass coaches were there hitting kids, the current staff, F those guys. But he went to Riverside Community College and then went to Idaho State. We both were told, he said he was given a, our coach said he had a shot of playing college ball. I had no shot. But I didn't hear it because all I knew was what Coach Harris kind of showed me. Not what he told me. He showed me better than he told me is that hard work can override a lot of things. And I know it's not a vaccine. It's not a magic elixir. But there's nothing wrong with kids believing that. That hater, I didn't have to hear that hater in a vacuum, my head coach, right? Uh, and, he, and, he, and, and his intentions were not to hate on me. He, you know, this was a pattern he recognizes. Hey, you're too small, whatever. He was probably right. But I didn't know any better. And that's my point. So don't be hating on Twitter, man. Just just think about what you're posting, like when you're bashing these kids. Let them be, let their imaginations be insane. Because mine was. Imagine that. I tell, I don't know what to tell you, coach. I'm going to the NFL. Dude, you got 10 high school starts. Doesn't matter, coach. I'm, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? I had a wild imagination. Still do. I don't see anything wrong with it. If it, if it impedes progress, my wife will call me out about it. Right? That's what I got for you. Uh, I know that's not going to make anyone not hate, but maybe that story kind of sees why. Maybe you understand why I am the way I am, why I tend not to empathize with the coach hating on kids and all that BS. So subscribe to my channel. Uh, hit some comments. Give me some likes. Share it, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I got, I think, between YouTube and Apple, I had like 250 uh, uploads on episode five. So I appreciate all that. I appreciate the uh, feedback I'm getting. Much respect to everybody. O-Line, our Hand on the Line podcast, episode 6. I'll catch you next time.